Hey Mike, how's it going? Whoa. Yeah, I'm full of enthusiasm. You also apparently are taping out of a very small porta potty or something. Was I really? Do, do they make metal porta potties? They should. That'd be epic. Uh, am I reverberating? Yes, a little bit. Wonder what that's about. I think you're okay now. Okay. Welcome part to. Part of it might have had to deal with the shouting. Divergent opinions episode eighteen. Look at that! You saw it. I saw right it right there on the top of the document we're about to read. Hey. So this week uh, kicks off December. Oh man, this year went by fast. No kidding. Did a lot huh. of stuff. This is December. Um, is the month where we quick buy as many trade show booths as the accountants tell us we need to. <laughs> and in the year. <laughs> um, yeah. Little known fact: all of Divergent Media's marketing budget is basically considered. It's like it's in a line item under wasted money at end of year. <laughs> well. We do enjoy seeing everyone, though. Yeah. But we'll be sure to let you know once we figure out uh, which treasures we think are the best to uh, eat up profits yeah. or whatever market products. Yeah. Also, anyone want to buy any Mac Pros? Let us know. Oh, yeah. We still got those. May as well just keep them for NAB now. Mm hmm. If we buy really, them. you think we're actually gonna show on Mac Pros again? Uh, good point. We should probably sell them and, and buy new Mac Pros next year, anyways. Then we get to depreciate them twice. Mm, see, I'm thinking minis with Thunderbolt. Yeah, probably. No minis. Um, IMAX. Oh. IMAX. IMAX are nice. I was just I was cutting on one today, and it's very nice. All right? Can't you see a booth with like a bunch of IMAX? Yeah. Mm, that would work. Yeah. And then we wouldn't have to have those janky drapes on the bottom of our tables. We could just have open plexiglass cubes that they sit on. Mm. Need wireless power. Yeah. <laughs> Stop by our booth. We're the one with the giant Tesla coil. <laughs> well, you know how, how well wireless everything else works at NAB. I'm sure, uh, you know, pumping a few hundred watts into the air would... Of course, you could probably power an iMac just off the stray RF in that room if you had a large enough antenna. Yeah. Great. So it's wireless except for the mile-long wire. <laughs> yeah, but it's not that that wire does not touch anything else. So. True. Um, what did we just decide we were going to start the show off on? Oh, right, I remember PSF this week. Um, a fellow named Alan. Tep Tep help me out here. I don't I know. To, I don't know his last name. I think T E P P U R. Yeah, Tepper. Okay. In any case, very nice fellow. Published an article on um, his site on Pro Video Coalition. Um, actually, he's been publishing a series of articles for um, a couple months now on um, PSF, which uh, goes by a lot of different names the same concept depending on the vendor um, and the gist of the idea and you may have seen it um, on 
on SDI, uh, used to be very common on SDI signals and HD-SDI signals, um, and common on a lot of HDV cameras. Less common on AVC-HD, but definitely still there on some AVC-HD cameras. Uh, and it's this idea of, in particular, recording progressive imagery within an interlaced signal um, and just basically setting a flag to say that you should treat two fields as a single frame instead of as two distinct points in time. Um, and so you see this most commonly as 30p in a 60i stream or 25p in a 50i stream. Um, and yeah. So this, this has always struck me as one of the crazy results of our standard system. So we're sending a frame down SDI. And granted, I've never actually, you know, catted an SDI stream into a text file and dug through it that closely. But I'm relatively certain that it sends. So a 60i SDI signal is 30 frames. Mm -hmm. And then they tag whether or not it's upper or lower interlace. Mm -hmm. That's correct, right? I am pretty sure. Yeah. And so someone has gone has and had the audacity to put a progressive frame into what was already a single frame and just not and and then like tag it so someone doesn't try to pull it into two separate fields. I just don't understand why did we never why didn't we start with this? Well, be, I mean, because we've been stuck with interlaced forever, and and then you needed a way to be backwards compatible. I mean, the thing about PSF is that it is backwards compatible. Even a a sixty i display displaying a, a thirty PSF signal will display it properly, but the the flag means that you can get back to a native thirty p file as well. I mean, I just don't understand when when we were setting up interlace flags. In a right. format like SDI, why didn't we didn't have upper, lower, and neither? Uh, it know. would have taken another bit. I know that and those are precious, <laughs> but <laughs> I think no one thought like, "Hey, wait a minute, what if we don't want it to get?" Oh, well, so yeah, and then um, the problem is this was added later, right? And right. so it's backwards compatible, meaning you can always just take a progressive frame and display it twice and it will still be progressive. Right. It'll just be frame doubled or, you or field doubled. The, the, yeah, you can display the two fields from it at two different points in time and it'll still work on, a progress, right. on an interlaced display. The issue is when people want progressive. Right, and, and increasingly, you know, if you're delivering for the web um, or, you know, pretty much any modern display, progressive is the way to go. Uh, again, depending on the sort of look you want and everything else. But when it comes down to the actual delivery side, um, all our displays nowadays are progressive. So right. um, 30p is a nice compromise as well between some of the limitations in terms of cinematography of a 24p um, stream and that you need to be a little more conscious of how you move the camera and things like that. Um, and you know, this sort of very video look of 30 of 60. I, I mean, I, I do, um, green screen shoots at 30 P all the time and sort of anything where you don't need, you don't need all of the temporal data of 60. I, but you don't want the, the film style look, um, 30 P is a really nice compromise. Um, and so, 
yeah, but you want to be editing 30p, um, not 60i. Right. And so the issue, so the issue has been that camera manufacturers have two ways of saving a progressive image. They can actually write out a file. So we're talking file-based cameras now, like the ABC HD ones that ClipRap supports. Um, they can either write out a progressive file and be done with it, and everyone supports that fine because, you know, video as files are natively progressive well, I, I formats. Would, I would probably stop you there and say that especially early on all of the AVC HD cameras only delivered 1080i and they were all doing 1440 by 1080i and so some of the software applications um, especially to begin with really only did support interlaced AVC HD sure but nonetheless in a file you can have progressive right. or interlaced content and the, all these file formats have supported that always you agree with that? yes unreasonable and so some I mean the industry sort of consolidate around interlaced content in MT in MPEG streams but there was no there was no technical limitation for why that had to be and since then we've seen a number of manufacturers come out with progressive cameras that shoot progressive that actually save transport streams that are progressive and those there's no, there's no issue with. I mean, assuming you're, as long as you're working in a workflow that supports progressive frame rates, you, you know, you use either ClipRap or you know, any of the native solutions built in your NLE. You get the footage; it's progressive. You cut it progressive, and you're done. What, what Alan was uh, highlighting is, the you know the other workflow that some of these manufacturers have come up with, and it seems to be mostly on the consumer side. Correct? Well, I, I think I so. Guess there Although, I guess there are Yeah, behind. I mean, PSF originally, at least I first became aware of it in some of the high, high-end Sony stuff um, because they did something called 1080 PSF 24 um, where they actually clocked the signal down to 48i and put 24p in it. Um, the idea being that in a broadcast in a studio situation most of the monitors would sync at 48i um, and then you could display your 24p signal natively and record it to your HD cam tape and, and things like that um, so we're talking and, about SDI now right? Right, not, right not a file and it gets a little confused as well because um, a lot of the vendors that do PSF also do 24p within a 60i stream and that sometimes gets lumped into the same category. I don't really think of it in the same category because in that case, you're actually doing a pull down. If you're putting 24p in a 60i, you're actually doubling some fields. Um, and whether you're doing that in an easily reversible way or not, I don't think of that in the same category as, as 30 PSF. Right. Because that's actually changing, at least in some respects, it's changing the actual content. Right. To get back to that native 24p, you actually need to do something to the data besides just treat it differently. Besides flag it differently, sure. And so so there are these cameras out there that are shooting in PSF. And the issue that Alan's been covering in his series is sort of all the workflow hangups that come from 
getting a file that the camera says, or that at least at the at the basic level looks like an interlaced file, and then having your NLE treated as interlaced instead of progressive. Now, and the reason why that is is because all of the manufacturers, you know, the the joy and the pain of uh, of MPEG transport stream, and on top of that the AVCHD spec is that there are n numerous ways to flag almost any bit of metadata um, and and this PSF flag is is no um, you know it's it's the same problem there are a number of places in the stream you can put that and so you know what he's been highlighting in his in his series is all of the various you know so when a when a camera manufacturer puts it in a different place, you know you you're waiting around until all of the manufacturers out there decide to you know expend the effort to support that, and then to write you know the code that that parses that and you know adds it to their metadata so that they treat the file properly and then you know beta it and ship it to everyone, and so. You know, he found a number of cameras which aren't working in the major NLEs du jour. Right. And and the problem is that once you get... It's one of these funny things about video files is that once you've sort of got a file, whether it's a QuickTime file or whatever, it's actually pretty tough to tell, to sort of change the essence of that file, to tell the computer to treat it as... Um, progressive or to tell the computer to treat it as if it's a different frame rate or things like that. I mean, obviously it's doable if you know how to sort of hack into the guts of the software but or, or of the file, but from a consumer perspective, a lot of times consumers end up doing these sort of very convoluted workflows that end up really costing a lot of quality because there's generation loss. You know, they retranscode through something like compressor, um, which might be interpolating. At a minimum, it's recompressing. Um, there's, there's just, you know, and it's strange because obviously what you really want to do is just tell the computer, hey, this is really progressive, treat it that way. Um, but you know, that's been pretty tricky for, for quite a while and then still is. So right. um, one of the things we did when, when Alan contacted us and sort of brought this issue up, um, it, it wasn't something that was really on our radar um, because we, we hadn't been hearing about it from a lot of users, but Alan brought it up and made a pretty good case about um, the importance and was able to provide some sample files and we were able to track down the, the flag and um, starting in our recent 2.4.4 release ClipRap now detects that PSF flag on Canon sources at least and flags those files appropriately as 30p or 25p depending on the region and um, we'd love to, you know, if there are other cameras out there that people are running the same thing on, um, you know, we'd love to add support. We just need to hear from users on that stuff. So the best thing you can do is get in touch with us, um, hopefully with a, a sample, two samples really, an interlaced sample, like a 60i sample and a progressive 30 PSF sample. Right. Or whatever, you know, if, right. you're, right. if you're pal, then that. 50 and 25. Right. And so I think it's also interesting to, to discuss, use this sort of as a uh, as a view into how we develop software. Yeah, um, just because. So we get a lot of which is very poorly. Zing. Oh. 
we, you know, we get a lot of feature requests from users, and uh, there's a there's a you know one of the toughest things to do as a as a software developer, especially someone who's trying to make simple software, software that's you know intuitive, easy to pick up, is uh, balancing individual feature requests against the sort of complexity of the package as a whole. And so when when Alan came to us, his the actual feature request he came to us with was, I would like a way to tell ClipRap to flag a shot as progressive, whether or not it is. You know, so your so I drop this file into ClipRap. It says this is an interlaced file, and I know better than that. So I want to have a checkbox I can check next to the format thing that says make this progressive. And you know, if you if you download two four four, you'll see there aren't any new checkboxes. There aren't any functions like that. And that's because you know we really you know, so what we went back to him and said, like, you know, can you send us a file? We're pretty sure we can find a way to do this without asking the user for any more information. You know, the the hope is that we don't have to train people. You know, as soon as you got a checkbox, you have to. The onus is on you as the software developer to guide the user to choose the right setting there. Right. Well, and you have to assume that users users sort of like to check boxes. Um, you, you know, one of the most telling things I think, you know, we prior to ClipRap 2.4.3 had a checkbox right on the main ClipRap window, the only ClipRap window that said convert audio to LPCM. And the box was checked by default. Uh, but we got at least one or two support requests a week saying, you know, I'm having trouble with audio. And I'd write back and say, well, did you uncheck that box? And they say, yes. And I'd write back and say, did you do that for a reason? And they'd say, no. Just, you know, <laughs> that, you, you know, users do that because they're not sure and what, whatever else. And so anytime you add complexity there, um, you're going to have users who do the wrong thing because they don't know what the right thing is or don't know what they should be thinking about there. Right. And so the, the onus is on the software to yeah. tell the user, to make it clear to the user what, whenever they're given an option, it's your job as a developer to make it obvious to the user what they should be choosing. You know, there are times, like obviously, you know, we have a destination, you know, there are settings in ClipRap. You choose where you want the files to go, you choose what format you want them in. And those are the sort of things that, you know, there is a real need for the user to decide that on their own. And the fewer other things we put on the screen that they need to decide, the more, you know, we're giving it more gravity. We're saying, you know, there are two things you have to tell us what to do. You have to tell us where to put it and what you want. And anytime you add more settings, you reduce the importance of all of the settings on the screen. Right. So, so yeah, so this is one of those things where, you know, there, it would have been, you know, an order of magnitude easier for us to say, oh, yeah, checkbox, sure. Here's a, you know, it takes, it takes a minute to add another setting to right. any application. When you, you know, when someone asks for a feature, the hardest thing to do is say no, yeah. because it's so very simple to add features. Well, and you, and we, as especially as small indie software developers, you know, we want to make our users happy, and you know, we don't have 
the sort of resources of a massive corporation to sort of fall back on in terms of our confidence and saying, you know, we don't need your your transaction. And that's what I think a lot of indie developers getting it, get into is that every sale, every customer really matters to an indie developer. Um, and so they tend to bend over backwards to, to you know, make every single user happy. Um, and, and you end up with software that's less good for everyone. I mean, just today I had a user request um, essentially wanting ClipRap to have a sort of advanced settings where you could go in and manually set your resolution and your frame rate and all the sort of things that you do in Compressor. And, and you know, that'd be really easy for us to add, but it would mean that users would be more likely to accidentally create bad video. And, you know, that sort of, yes, it's unfortunate that we don't deliver exactly the experience that this user wants, but it's better than having a bunch of users have video that's ruined in my opinion. Right. And I also think that, you know, if you just want to see an example of, of the alternative to this, and it's it's one of my biggest criticisms of open source development, is that often in a truly open source project wherein there's actually a community of developers and it's not just sort of um, software that's being developed and then the source is being released, you often see software where there are buttons and boxes for every single feature because every user who's involved with the development process adds their own pet needs. Um, right, and and it becomes really cumbersome. It becomes less useful for everyone. It becomes difficult to maintain and difficult to test. Um, and it's you know it's worse, except for it's got that one feature that that person needed, and it's got that other feature that that other person needed. Exactly. And so yeah, so the end result is you know, Alan came to us with with a need we figured out what the base need was, which is I want these files to work properly in my NLE when all is said and done. And we found a way to implement it, which, you know, if we weren't talking about right now, or if we weren't, you know, if we hadn't put it in our list of changes for the app, you know, users who downloaded the update wouldn't even notice. You know, it's just suddenly these files are being treated a little more correctly. Right. And that's really what we strive for is, you know, you, you know, if you were choosing, I want to go to DNX HD, now, you know, the files that you get at the other end are actually what your camera was, was shooting. And you don't have to know if your camera was shooting that, or you don't have to know if, you know, a lot of, a lot of our users are getting files from random places. And so this idea of having a bunch of settings that you set is great if you know, if A, you are you know, knowledgeable enough that you that you know the best path through the software, which is you know far from intuitive, even for people who really know this stuff. And two, if you even know what the original footage is, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, you could imagine a you know you could imagine another application written with that in mind, where like you know we just let the user drive it. The workflow would end up being open every file in another application that can tell you what it is if I, you know or like the the application would have to parse the file and give you all the information like this is actually a psf file and here's the frame rate and here's the audio format here's the sample rate here's the channel layout you know you'd have to do all the work that we're doing to parse out that file anyways show it to the user so they can make an informed decision about what to go to it just yeah. End result, we handle it for you. Right. I think it works quite nicely. Agreed.
it works a little better now. Two four four, download it. It's well, free. Download two four six actually, because yeah. uh, two four four had some bugs. My fault. It's always your fault, God. I think the ones in. That's why I hired you. Ones- so that everything could be your fault. Oh, okay. Yes, you're right. It is all my <laughs> fault. Seem to recall. Never mind. Um, okay. Anything else on that topic? Otherwise, we'll put a link to Alan's piece in our show notes. Um, definitely take a look. It's a really interesting read, and he's really dug deep into this whole process um, yeah. from from start to finish. Yeah. Let's uh, let's move on. Okay. You wanted to talk about SD cards. Yeah, we've got a blog post that'll go up uh, once we remember to put it up. Um, we have a bunch of those about. Um, SD card failure. And I'm just trying to bring a little attention to this because I'm sort of shocked that... You've been seeing this a lot. Yeah, either I'm misinterpreting the situation or I'm sort of shocked that this isn't getting as much... um, It just doesn't generate as much noise on the internet as I would expect because what I've been seeing both from our users and also actually in my own experience is, you know, SD cards having fairly short lifespans when they're used in video workflows. Um, and the symptoms we're seeing are that we, you know, get reports from users saying, hey, ClipRep wouldn't convert my file. It said error parsing or, you know, some other issue. Um, and, you know, we look at the logs and then we ask them to send the file. And when we look inside the file, we find there are big chunks of sort of no data. Um, so, you, you know, normally within a file, you sort of expect it to have, if you open it in like a hex editor, you expect it to sort of have a seemingly random distribution of data inside it. It's like a big bucket full of stuff. Um, And inside these files, we're seeing what I'll see is, you know, two megabytes, three megabytes of just zeros. right smack in the middle of the file, smack in the middle of a a gop. And it doesn't make any sense why those would be there. Um, And when we go in and sort of patch around those um, by just sort of snipping them out and and, trimming out the invalid, uh, you know, remaining chunks, you end up with a video that that just plays back very strange. Is obviously missing data where there should have been data where those zeros were. I even had one a couple of weeks ago where um, there was actually data from a previous shoot inside of another file. So it was like a, a scene of a guy walking in a field, and then midway through it was a scene that had been shot weeks earlier and since deleted of a um, shot in an entirely different location, and then it cut back to the original shot. Uh, it's very much like in, in the old days where, you you know, if you didn't blank a tape and you reused a tape and then you sort of didn't, you know, line up all of your recordings right, you would end up sort of seeing some old stuff and then cutting back to your new stuff, which is not what you expect in the world of digital, right? I mean, no. you know, th- that shouldn't happen ever. Um, and, you know, what's happened in that case, obviously, is that no, no data was written to that segment of the SD card during the shot. Um, and then, but the, the sort of file allocation table still pointed to, well, this file starts at this place on the SD card and goes to this place on the SD card and the computer was able to read it and get data off. But what it was getting off was whatever data happened to be in those, uh, cells on the card because they weren't overwritten. Right. So not only was the camera not able to write this time, but the time before when it tried to write zeros to that spot to delete that file, it also didn't write anything. Right. And what's strange, I mean, one, it's strange the, the sort of frequency I'm seeing this. Two, it's strange that, you know, that user was able to go through that whole process 
up to the point of getting a file off of the card, and he never got an error. He didn't get an error during record, he didn't get an error during copy. It wasn't until he went to view that footage that it didn't work, and that's scary. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, you know, the yesterday or Wednesday, I was doing a shoot um, with an XDCAM EX1 going to SD cards with an MXR adapter, and at least in that case, I had a bad card, and at least in that case, the XDCAM threw up an error during the, sh- the record, and it was mid-take, and so Oof. it still sucked to have to stop the talent and say, sorry, we've got a bad card, but at least it wasn't, you know, after the talent had left. At least you left. did it, yeah. yeah. At least you could redo it. Um, but, you know, we've seen a handful of these over the last few weeks and, and you know, more over the previous, you know, preceding months and i'm just wondering you know so the the gist of the the article we're going to be putting up is basically just a reminder that you know sd cards don't have an infinite lifespan even though they advertise a high number of rewrites that's certainly not what we're seeing and i you know what it's meant for me is that i really want to start thinking of sd cards just the same way that i used to think of mini dv tapes which is use them once put them on a shelf don't use them again yeah, I mean, I'm not incredibly surprised that we're seeing an inordinate number of reports, you know, a disproportionate number of reports, just because I think it wouldn't, I don't think it would be uncommon for people to go looking for a solution, you know what I mean? Like, we're kind, we have a reputation and we show up in searches for my NLE can't open these files, right. you know? Like if you're if you have an M2TS file that doesn't open in Final Cut, and you start Googling around for that, you know you're, it would not be uncommon to find to end up on our site, looking at our software. And so, I mean, we are kind. You know, I think we're going to see. You know, we're going to get a lot of the sort of spillover from all of the other applications, which aren't going to be able to open these files as well. Mm-hmm. And you know they're more likely to get someone who can help diagnose their problem if they send us support. You know, so if they send support to Apple or go into the Genius Bar, you know, they you know they're likely to hear like, oh yeah, it sounds like it's something wrong with your camera. Right. In which case, they might actually believe it. Um, and so, I can see why we're seeing this and reporting it first. Um, but yeah, it's. I don't know. I'm also curious. It seems like it's, I, see, I mean, granted, you know, the, our installed base and our number of users, you know, new users every month is is growing. But it seems like the the volume is going up too. Yeah. And, you know, some of that may be that we're just hitting a point in a life cycle where people who bought ABC HD cameras once they really started hitting primetime in 2009-ish, you know, are now Have burning up cards. shooting the same card, yeah. you know. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, what to attribute it to. It could be that there were bad batches out of a particular yeah, yeah. vendor. You know, we haven't been collecting information about what SD card vendor people ran. And uh, honestly, for me, you know, I've never paid much attention. I buy whatever the cheapest class six is that I can get. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, we certainly had that happen, you know, a number of times <laughs> over the years with with hard drives. That, you yeah, know, you, well, all you'll have like just crazy you know or with tapes i mean you know there was the the what finally got 3m out of the beta cam business was they had a batch of tapes that had a bad adhesive on it and the you know charge material just fell off and you know thousands and thousands of beta cam tapes that you know recorded fine and were totally unreadable yeah Yeah. 
Um, and also dumped a bunch of right magnetic dust in your right. And there've been issues with you know film batches too, <laughs> where you know you had a you know Kodak or Fuji, whatever, had a bad run of film that had problems. I mean, you know, any media is going to have issues, and and you know, obviously SD, you know, things like solid state recordings get. I think even more abuse because we know that there are no moving parts in there. We know that they're impervious to, you know, almost any external factor, water, magnets, pretty much. It's pretty hard to intentionally kill a good piece of SD media. Um, And so I think they probably get more abuse than, you know, a really carefully treated HD cam tape or something. Sure. Um, But yeah, it'll be, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to hear. We'd love to hear from other users what your experiences have been and, and you know, what your policies are on keeping SD media around. I mean, it's probably it's probably not necessary to, throw, you know, replace media after every shoot. On the other hand, I think it's a nice archival method is to just put SD cards on the shelf just like you did with DV tapes. But, you know, we're figuring out what the appropriate number of reuses is because, again, you know, the cards state that they've got 100,000 rewrites in them and... and I just think that's completely Again, bogus. Yeah, I can't imagine any of these cards have hit that. No. Um, so, yeah. An interesting issue. Yeah. Does anyone make a good archival, like, like at the level of container store type solution? Does anyone make a good setup for archiving small media? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, like, even even mini-DV was a little too small to archive on. Yeah. You know, like, they were great, the form factor, but you just, you couldn't write enough data on, like, you could not write enough information on the spine. Right. And I just, how would you do, what would you... Yeah, that's, I mean, you could... trying to you, think how I would, I mean, you just chuck them all in a shoebox and hope well, you what I would probably, look at them again? you get, like, SD card um, wallets and, you know, label them. Do they a, make those? Yeah, I think so, for photographers. So, you know, label each card with just a number and then include an index. I don't know. Because, yeah, you're not going to write a lot of log notes on the uh, SD card sticker. No. But, eh. Logging. So, what else What else happened this week? Uh, do you need any double A's? <laughs> yeah, new product announcement from Red. <laughs> I guess there was just there was a week where they were like we we haven't announced a new product this week. What are we gonna do? And someone was like, "Well, I have some stickers and I have some batteries." So yes, Red has announced the Red Volt, which is a double A battery. Just a normal like alkaline double A. Nothing but fancy with their logo on it. Right. That's actually cheap. Two you know fifty cents a double A. That's not bad. But uh, I just. You know, I don't understand why that was a, how it's, it's like, you know, yes, we sell scope box, but we've never gotten into the business of selling the SDI cable to hook your computer yeah. up to your camera uh, because we don't have time for that. Like right. wh- in what universe does this make any sense? And they can't be making any money on it. I mean, I know they've got the fanboy thing going on. I mean, the only oh, here's the only thing I can think of is, you know, it it's a nice attention to detail if when you know you know like when you when you buy a new tv and it's got the remote control and the remote control's got the shit batteries in it yeah like it's a nice attention to detail to 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 brand the batteries i get that i get why you would you know 
they've obviously got OEM con- you know contracts with OEM manufacturers and stuff because they put their name on everything. Yeah. You know, if the company that makes your little Pelican cases can also throw your brand on a battery, I get that. Do that. Put them in your case when you ship the thing. So when someone, you know, unboxes their fancy new thing that it is paid a lot of money for, you know, that's nice. It's got a little pack of batteries in it. The pack of batteries isn't like Generatron or whatever they're called. It's like, oh, look, they're reds. You know, that's cute. Do that. But selling them, yeah. like dealing with like fulfillment for it, like I don't, that I don't get. Yeah, I, I don't get it at all either. Um, but that's red, I guess. There are many things that fall into that category. Um, I won't be buying any. And I mean, and, you know, it's just, I could, I could see it too if they wanted to go the route Apple went and have rechargeable double A's that were branded and that had some sort of interesting feature set. But, you know, these are just going to get tossed and I don't know. Oh, well. No. I mean, maybe they'll give them away at their booth at NAB. That'd be nice. I haven't gotten yeah. free batteries since the last dot-com bubble. They used to give away free batteries? Oh, God, there was a website where you could go and just, like, request free double A's. What? Yeah. It was like, and you could get, like, 20 double A's at a time for free. Free double A's.com? Yeah. What is this? This was, was someone's This was, was someone's business model? Yeah, yeah. It was, like, you know, 1998, 1999. I used to get free batteries. It was wow. way better than uh, Radio Shack's Battery of the Month Club. What? There was the other thing, Radio Shack. You used to be able to go in and get a free battery every month if you were part <gasps> one of some battery? club. Yeah. You can get like one D cell or, you know. What? I, wow. I apparently am not on you know, top of this of like you. Battery, la- battery? No. I'm almost positive I'm not dreaming this up. The closest I've ever done is I sometimes bring dead batteries into Radio Shack. But that was before I moved to San Francisco, and now you can just, like... Throw them at homeless throw, people? You just throw them out the window, and they get recycled. I don't know how it works, but... The free battery card. Yeah, used into the 1990s. It wasn't like a buy 10, get one free sort of thing? No. It was like... It entitled it wasn't the like a coffee to club. one free battery a month when presented at one of their stores. <laughs> and you just had to go through... You just had to listen to, the, like, the spiel about prepaid cell phones or something? Well, this was before all that. This is back when they actually sold, like, transistors and stuff. They still do that. Well, they have, like, the one drawer that they sort of look at you funny if you go and... The shack. Yeah, they still do it, though, because uh, I find Mouser overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, what else on the list is interesting to you? We'll, we'll send a link out to um, an article Phil Bloom wrote this week on uh, whether you should buy a Scarlet or not, and I'll throw a link to the demo, the first sort of comprehensive demo video of the new Canon um, C300, which I found very impressive. Um, both yeah. the, the video was very nice, but it also really made the camera look very attractive. Yeah, that's a nice-looking camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you can shoot at 20,000 ISO and have it look as good as it did and... And, and as the video points out, have the flexibility then to actually stop down your lens and uh, yeah. get a depth of field that looks pretty nice and everything. Yeah. It did look nice. Uh, what does that shoot to? I haven't actually, I haven't paid that close attention. Uh, SD cards, I'm almost positive. Do you know, I mean, is it 
what sort it, of wrapper? Oh, it's uh, MXF. It's the Canon XF uh, format, so it's 50 megabit MPEG-2 422. Okay, yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, we need to talk about that some more mm-hmm. offline. Yeah. Um, okay, last thing maybe uh, to cover before we get into other stuff is um, this article from scottkelby.com on Adobe's upgrade cycle. And I thought this might be an interesting way to just talk about upgrades in general. Um, Scott Kelby wrote an article, a sort of open letter to Adobe, asking them to rethink how they handle upgrades. And obviously, you know, Adobe's sort of the, um, you know, especially on the design side of things, everyone owns Photoshop. You have to own Photoshop and you sort of pay the Adobe tax in that you need to stay current with upgrades if you want to benefit from upgrade pricing. So if you want to get CS6 when it comes out next year, you need to be running CS55 or CS5. Uh, But the reality for most design shops is that there was nothing in CS5 they needed. Um, There may not have even been anything in CS4 they needed. And Upgrades are expensive, especially if you have a bunch of seats of Adobe software, and if you have the full suite, you know, that you're talking about a lot of money to stay current every year, and now that Adobe is on a yearly sort of upgrade cycle, that that adds up, and if you're a small shop, it's pricey. Um, But if you don't upgrade, it's even worse, because then when you are ready to move to CS5 or CS6 or CS7 or whatever, you need to pay the full price, uh, which, as we all know, is quite a bit more. and so the open letter is basically arguing that Adobe should rethink that upgrade process um, so that at a minimum, if you're coming from you know CS3 or CS4, there is some sort of upgrade path besides buying CS5 and then buying CS6 upgrades. Um, and so this is new, right? I'm not clear how new it is. I mean, Adobe's been changing their licensing model quite a bit, and they're going to that subscri- or offering that subscription thing that they announced at NAB this year. And... I can't keep it all straight. I'm not. I'm not sure. Because my understanding is that with CS6 now, it used to be that you could just upgrade, you know, pretty much from any existing version, you could get the upgrade price. It sounds like what they're doing now is you basically have to have, you can only upgrade from the last whole number. Right. So CS6, you'll only be able to get the upgrade price from five or five five. And, you know, the only so, I mean, what it sounds like he's arguing for is just a one-time amnesty. You know, his major beef seems to be that they announced this towards the end of this. Right. You know, they said like, oh, everyone who hasn't already bought 5 or 5.5, five, five, quick, do it, because we're going to screw you soon. <laughs> right. You know, and so it's, so basically you're forcing people to upgrade twice instead of, you know, because people who are upgrading to 5.5 five now with the knowledge that six is coming soon, you know, they don't get a lot out of that except, you know, two small jumps instead of one big jump in upgrade price. And so, I mean, that I understand. I don't really have any problem with Adobe charging or forcing people into an upgrade cycle. I, uh, I mean, it's interesting to watch this in the industry because I think we're seeing a real sort of um, uh, schism between the App Store model, which actually encourages free upgrades and frequent upgrades, and the sort of traditional model, which has always been that you have major releases and you pay to upgrade from you know 1.0 to 2.0. And 
I think a lot of this is still being shaken out, and I don't think I would make the argument that there's sort of a consumer expectation one way or the other yet. Um, well, and, and also, it's worth, I mean, the App Store model isn't really per se, I mean, it's not quite that. It's, there are two App Store models. One is every time we make a major revision, you buy it again. And the other one is you buy once and get free upgrades for life. Right. There's no, there's no, I mean, the one thing that is not in the App Store model is any notion of preferential treatment to existing users. Correct. Unless that's free. Right. And, you know, that's a hard issue because, you know, we're, you know, you know, it's great to grow your user base in the App Store, you know, particularly on iOS because Apple is selling so many iOS devices and so many people buy apps a lot of developers have been able to take the approach of, you know, once we've sold a copy, we we don't have any additional cost to supporting those users, and we're adding enough new users um, that we're actually growing our sort of monthly income substantially. You know, look at Angry Birds. I mean, Angry Birds, you know, sold lots of people, lots and lots of people, an app for $5. But since selling that particular, you know, since selling a given copy, that user's probably gotten you know, tons of new levels and new birds and new features and all kinds of things for free. They don't uh, charge for those? I thought they charged for most of those upgrade packs, no, like I, in-app purchase. No, no. No? I mean, I've never paid, and I sort of get updates all the time with extra stuff. I mean, they do have some in-app purchases, but uh, no, lots of new levels and things. Or they have hmm. Angry Birds Seasons, which seems like sort of every holiday they get a new level out there for that holiday. And hmm. um, But, you know, again, they're selling, uh, you know, insane numbers of copies of the, the app and it doesn't cost them anything additional to ship that update to one user or a thousand users it doesn't even cost them bandwidth uh, right. and I so mean, for them the model must be if we have users that have played this long enough they're no longer playing it and by extension no one's sitting next to them on the subway while they're playing it right you know the the you know if you don't have to pay for the the distribution costs and you have I mean there's relatively little support costs on the App Store because you know screw you if it doesn't work right um, so you know in that case you know with especially with a game where people sort of level off of it you know pushing content get, keeps people using it and you know one of the biggest words of mouth is that somebody sitting you know especially with these portable devices is someone sitting next to you using it yeah but i you know that that's not going to work for photoshop right i mean every like, like you said every single design house is on photoshop already there's not a lot to grow in in new sales right i just you know i think my biggest issue with the adobe thing is that like i totally am all for paying for upgrades that give you things that you need like that makes tons of sense obviously um i think it's just that issue of you know photoshop i think we can agree is a pretty mature product at this point and most of the updates don't include things that that users need um and so if the only reason to upgrade is to not fall off the upgrade train because there might be a feature you need in the next release and if i don't buy this upgrade now i'll never be i won't be able to buy the next upgrade later 
I think that just is a little a little sketchy. I mean, you know, we Divergence had a couple different approaches to upgrades um, with the right. different apps. You know, with Clipwrap from 1.0 to 2.0, it was very clear what you were getting for your your upgrade for your nineteen dollars. You were getting an entirely new format in APCHD. Right. Um, and I mean, one of the reasons why we did that is because the upgrade was predominantly for new users. You know, there was. I mean, there's a point right, in right. your in the life cycle where you might change cameras. But, but otherwise, if, if it if, wasn't adding new features exactly. for existing users, if you were using 1.0 and it and then you had an HDV camera, camera, right? There was no reason to upgrade, and so the only reason to upgrade was, you know, hey, I bought a new camera, and oh great, I didn't even have to buy a new app. I just upgrade the existing app, and now it supports that. Um, you know, makes a ton of sense. Right. I mean, I don't know. It seems like at some point, I mean. The world uses Photoshop. There must be some value to it. Otherwise, people would all use GIMP. Um, or, you know. Yeah. What, or uh, Photo. What's that one? Uh, I'm totally blanking on that. The good, the Pixelmator? Pixelmator. You know, I mean, like, those apps obviously get used, but, you know, there's a reason why Photoshop is the de facto standard. I mean, there's it's not like... It's not like Word in legal departments where you have to be able to open each other's files. I mean, for the most part, image files are interchangeable. Right. No, it's I, pretty I, rare you're passing around a Photoshop comp unless you're working within a department. So people who use it see some value in it. I mean, as long as it's spelled out, like, listen, you have to pay, you know, three hundred bucks a year, or you're gonna have to pay six hundred later. Like, yeah. it just seems like a really, you know, it's just a calculation. Then, I mean. I don't think there's any, I mean, Adobe's not going to come kick you if you don't upgrade. Just, you know, you just know you're either upgrading yearly or you're upgrading every three years. Right. And that seems perfectly reasonable to me. Well. I don't know. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see um, into, you know, whether, I don't know when we'll start seeing it really, when the first round of really big upgrades come for some of the more expensive app store apps like Final Cut X um, and how that gets handled, you know, or, or iWork or iLife, some of these apps um, that, are, that are more substantial and have, you know, very substantial development time behind them, how some of these big vendors handle that, you know. Um, I mean, I guess Lions, I mean, Lion could be considered an upgrade, although people didn't buy snow leopard through the store right right uh, yeah so the real question well and i think you know and i mean apple dropped the price a lot i mean right i don't know yeah it will be interesting i mean i think the only way to do it is going to be to recharge everyone yeah and hope that you have a large enough installed base that you can drop the purchase price right and expect you know i think i think yeah the only way to do it with the app store is going to be to hope that you have a large enough installed base that most of your sales are going to be from them and not from new users and then you just discount your software yeah hope you know across the board so the first version of you know scope box in the app store is a hundred dollars and then you know we sell that two million copies of it and then the next version is you know we predominantly consider an upgrade and it's twenty dollars and then anyone who you know waited can buy it you know can now of a sudden buy it for less yeah 
I don't know. I mean, it, it'll be, or maybe we'll see mm. a paid upgrade model come to the App Store. I wouldn't rule yeah. that out at all. Um, <laughs> Nothing's going to make Apple do it more than Apple needed to do it. Right. Um, and, you know, upgrades with Apple especially have always been a little a mixed bag. You know, Final Cut upgrade policies were always a little strange. And um, a lot of their other expensive software doesn't have upgrade paths or never had upgrades paths. So, you know, we'll see where see where it all gets sorted out. Um, but it's, you know, it's a tricky thing for developers. It's a tricky thing for indies back to that same issue of you don't want to alienate customers, but you also need to keep the lights on. Um, so... Yeah, yeah. It's it's strange. It's like there really isn't another product like that where people expect it to improve over time after they've purchased it. Right. Although interestingly, I think you know, as as increasingly things become software driven, you know, we are starting to see that a little bit more. There's there was a story a few weeks ago that, uh, and this is the first time I know of it coming from coming officially, is that Ford is going to be shipping software updates for their integrated control systems oh, for sync. sync they're going to be shipping that directly to the end users on a usb key that they can upgrade their software and get a bunch of new features at home you know it's always really been take to a dealership or there's port. a usb port in your car yeah yeah has that not been hacked yet uh i don't know that it has no one's made like I mean, no one's got, made like a, a patcher for sync i don't think so i mean they've got like an api and stuff so i don't know that there'd be a need to Wait, you can you can write apps for your yeah, car at pretty home? Pretty sure, yeah. Whoa. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, normally when you buy a car... I assume it's not the, the like, engine control different computer? Car, yeah, different computer. <laughs> and I think they're... Uh, it's not a network, right? World, yeah. Oh. I don't think it's on Canvas or something. Um, but yeah, anyways, normally you buy a, a computer, a car, and, and you get what comes with it, and there's no upgrade at all, you know, even if your sat-nav maps go out of date, sometimes you can't update those. Um, and so that that's a really interesting thing. And obviously, we've seen with, you know, I think more negative than positive, um, like the, the Nest thermostats just started shipping, and the very first thing that they do when you power them up is download an update. Um, sort, of takes, sort of takes a little bit of shine off the user experience, but, you know, as more and more devices in our lives become either connected or connectable and software driven we'll probably see more of that and it'll be interesting to see you know i you know someday we have to pay to upgrade your thermostat we have to pay to you know we should yeah we should have a conversation about like that on one of these podcasts specifically about like you know the sort of third party camera hacking yeah that's a good point that would be an interesting conversation yeah for another time another time for now you got some chatter yeah um so i wanted to talk about i got an email from abel cine out in new york and they have a new light which they are um it sounds like they've basically bought an exclusive contract with this company to make um it's what's called the technology is called remote phosphor and it's similar to um, it's, it's similar in a lot of ways to LED technology where so in an LED you've got the little light emitting diode and then in that plastic bubble they stick some phosphors and that's what determines the color as well as the sort of you know intensity and you know it's what makes the LED 
even lighting that doesn't like flicker constantly and that you know sets the color temp things like that um, and so what this light has done is added another pass to that it sounds like so they've got an LED and then they've got a large phosphor impregnated crystal that you mount that's mounted on the front of the assembly and so what happens is it, it you know it, it looks really interesting it's a, it's very bright um, very low wattage and uh, fully dimmable with no flicker and you know looks pretty robust um, you know none of the issues you have with some of the other lights with heat or with uh, you know it's all running in DC so it's relatively waterproof resistant um, it looks like a neat little light yeah yeah it's a cool technology and it's and you know it was just funny I was doing I was doing this shoot the other day and I was just thinking how funny it is how many different types of lighting we have these days versus even 10 years ago when it was still just everything was quartz you know quartz yeah um, now we've got, you know, and maybe some HMIs, but even, you know, now we've got HMIs and LEDs and fluorescents and stuff like this and all kinds of other weird lighting technologies. Um, you know, it's pretty awesome. And, and, you know, it's sure nice to not have lights that, you know, burn the hell out of you or blow all the circuits or, um, everything else, burn up your gels. Mm-hmm. You ever had a... You ever had a quartz blow up on you? Oh yeah, yeah. Those will those will blow real good. Yeah, and those omnis. Oh, I guess yeah. Those the, yeah, those shooting little omnis with the screen on the front. Yeah. Yeah. Those blew up good. And if you didn't put that screen on, and they blew. And you were in someone else's place shooting on on location. Yeah. And they had carpet. <laughs> Not saying that ever happened. But. Yeah. Well, I've had. I mean, I've you know even you know had them blow and shoot that screen right off and. Yeah. Good, good times. Mm-hmm. Kids these days, they won't know anything about that. You ever burn a hole through one of the bount, that stupid reflective umbrella? Yeah. I did that once. <laughs> yeah. A lot of burn stuff. Oh, my God. And when students used to, oh, this drove me nuts. Students would, like, gaff tape gel to the barn doors. <laughs> they, like, would forget to take clips and be like, I need to hold this gel here. Gaff tape, gaff tape. Oh. And it would melt. Yeah, and gaff tape mm-hmm. once it's been heated to you know 500 degrees does not peel off nicely. Yeah. Uh, stupid students. I'm still mad at you. Chatter. My chat. Yeah, what's yours? Um, I guess I'll throw out um, get it while you can the VMware Fusion update 4.1 if you're on a Mac, uh, which lets you virtualize Leopard, Snow Leopard, and Lion client. Uh, within VMware. Normally, you've been limited because of Apple's EULA to virtualizing only server, which causes two issues. One, um, you need to own copies of server and have serials for them. And two, you then have to be running server in your VM test environment, which normally isn't a big issue, but it's sort of a pain in the ass to deal with having like open directory and all that stuff hanging around, breaking when really you just want a way to test your app on 10.5 without booting a separate computer. Um, so, <laughs> ostensibly, this was, okay, 
in revisionist history, this was an accident, and VMware did not mean to do this. Um, and suddenly in 2.1, they just accidentally forgot to check for the licensing when installing OS 10 VMs, and they added a new dialogue that said, like, hey, remember to check your licensing because we're not doing it. But apparently that was all an accident. Um, so anyways, they say they're going to be putting up an update which fixes the accident by um, removing support for Leopard, Snow Leopard, and Lion clients. Um, but uh, so get it where you can, and uh, hopefully they never upgrade. Yeah, hopefully they won't break those images in an upgrade. They probably will, um, because having VMs of old versions of the OS around is incredibly handy when you need to quickly test something and you don't want to have to boot another Mac or dual boot your machine. Yes. So is that it for this week? I guess so. Okay. Well, we'll do this again next week. Next week. And then after that, we'll do a live. Oh, yeah? You're going to be out here in two weeks. We should do it from a bar. We can have our fans come and they can sit. Okay. And buy us drinks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you want to do that and you listen to this podcast. And you live in San Francisco. And you own a bar. <laughs> please contact us. Yeah. Oh. Next time. Next week. Talk to you later. Bye.